With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I admit, by the way, I miss coming to your country. God, I haven't been there in so long. I hate that. Yeah, it's going to be a while as well, isn't it? I know. Shoot. I, I, I hate that. I love coming to the UK. The shark bait has such teeth there, and it shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has old Maggie Heat, babe, and it keeps it out of sight. You know when that shark bites. So, welcome everybody to another episode of Macklin's Take. Me, Andy Clark, and Matt Macklin. Steering the ship as always. I hope everybody is well. We've had a few more changes since we were last with you. Not on the podcast, uh, in general society, but we won't go through those because as much as possible, we try not to mention the C word. Not mentioning the C word in broadcasting generally is a pretty sound policy, but the C word here being, being COVID, of course. Of course, you all knew that. So this week, for the second week in a row, we have got a Hall of Famer hot on the heels of Frank Warren last week. And today we have another man who has achieved the kind of longevity in the sport of boxing that very few people manage to do. He's in a slightly different area to Frank. And I've been looking forward to this one because he's in my area, or rather I'm in his. I think that would be that would be fairer because he's a broadcaster, a commentator, uh, par excellence and it's the smooth voice one of the smooth voices of, of showtime boxing al bernstein al how are things things are good and i'm delighted that we got a chance to uh, make this happen nice to visit with you guys well you've just come out of your fighter meetings for this weekend's big pay-per-view on showtime which will have been and gone by the time this goes out so there's there's no real <laughs> there's no real point in us discussing those those matchups particularly but it's a big night, isn't it? It's a big night for boxing generally. It's a big night for the for the platform that you've been working for for, for for a long period of time. And I think by most people's estimation, this is was, would have been, by the time people hear this, an extremely strong card and a bit of a statement card, particularly given the times that we're in at the minute. 
Yeah, I, I think every, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, you know, I think every, on both sides of the pond, you know, every promoter, every network, every uh, fighter, every, every entity is looking for ways to uh, make some kind of good statement about the, 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 um, about boxing being back and providing something entertaining for the fans uh, in, in a new format clearly. But so every time somebody uh, makes a good fight or makes a fight that should be good and hopefully it ends up being or has a strong card, it's that much more to help the sport of boxing. And uh, we're certainly, uh, you know, hopeful that by the time this airs, uh, that will have been done. We, we said the same thing to Frank last week because you've both been right up in the upper echelons of boxing for roughly the same period of time, actually, I think. Yeah, and yeah that's true. Frank's, uh, yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, Frank was starting in the 80s. That's when I, when I started, uh, you know, when I was a 10-year-old in the 80s is when I started. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, nobody's seen anything is like my, this. Is my nose growing or what? <laughs> Well, this is an audio format, so it doesn't it doesn't matter. Yeah, um, you wouldn't know. We couldn't tell. <laughs> um, we said this to Frank, and as I said, we don't we're not going to discuss the intricacies of it too much. But he probably thought at the start of the year that he'd seen it all in boxing, and you probably thought at the start of the year that you'd seen it all or variations thereof. And then all of a sudden, this this happens. How did you? How did you think that the sport would would cope? Were, were you always confident that boxing, of all sports, the great survivor that it is, would would find a way? Well, you know, that's, that's also a really good question. I think part of the thing that makes boxing uh, more, a little more doable, a little more, uh, in, in these times uh, that are so perilous is that you have two combatants uh, at any given time. It's not the same as your version of football or ours or rugby or, uh, or baseball or basketball or any of those sports uh, where you have all these people involved. You have the two athletes. So you, you would think you'd have a little better chance to kind of um, cope with it. Now, having said that, we've all seen cards already in which um, – boxers have had to withdraw because they had COVID-19. And so uh, the sport didn't come through unscathed. But my feeling was, and I think everybody felt it, that boxing had a better chance of kind of doing that. And um, and I think to some degree, it, clearly it has. I actually would compliment sports in general. Um, and, and this applies internationally. For the most part, I think various sports entities have done a pretty darn good job uh, given the circumstances of coming back within the restrictions they have and being able to give sports fans something that we need. You know, uh, everybody has things in their life that while they're not the essential things uh, that like my wife and I, we love to go to the movies, right? You know, where that's, we love that. And that was taken away from us and uh, in terms of going someplace and going to the movies. And sports is the same way. You know, for many people, it's, a, it's just a very important outlet for them. And so I, it's important to have it, not at any cost, 
but it's important to have it. And, and I, I, I think that a lot of sports have done a really good job of coming back. And I think boxing, you know, has, has like every other one, has tried to find its footing and figure out the best ways to do it. And they're still going through that process. But we know this much. We've already seen some really good matches. More are on the way. Uh, and uh, as we continue to move forward toward the time when fans will be a part of the equation, um, I think we're going to – this last quarter of, of 2020 is, I think, an important one for the sport. So how's the landscape politically, if that's quite the right – word with regard to boxing because over here obviously Sky and BT are the two main platforms in the UK Sky looking strong that's who we work for obviously um, BT are looking strong too they, they've put out a good number of shows uh, MTK have put out a good number of shows people have got up and out there as, as quick as they they've been able to really and and in these situations there are always winners and losers ostensibly everybody loses in the short term because everybody's going to lose money, but you can improve your relative market position, I suppose. These aren't things I'm really accustomed to saying because they're not the kinds of things I generally have any interest whatsoever in discussing. Right, exactly, yeah. Yeah, I I generally don't do much in terms of talk that much about that landscape. However, you make a good point. In this current time, Inevitably, you probably it probably comes up a little bit more. I kind of view it, I, and I didn't mean to cut off your question, but uh, I kind of, you are right. There are sometimes winners and losers, uh, and I think in the early part of the game, I think at this point, probably, if anybody had to pick someone that it seemed to have been the most detrimental to from a platform standpoint, it's probably DeZone. and most other networks uh, and or platforms uh, and promoters, I think have, uh, you know, they've, been very, they've had varying degrees of success. But in each case, I think they're moving in, in the same direction. And we'll have a better idea, I think, about how it shakes itself out by the end of this year. I think once we hit December and we're headed toward the end of the year, when everybody, all the different promoters and platforms, as I say internationally, both in your neck of the woods and mine and elsewhere, when they've had a chance to put their product out and do everything, I think we'll have a chance at the end of the year to, you know, kind of take a, a step back and breathe a sigh of relief and say, okay, let's see now, how did this shake itself out? I think it's a little too early for that. Matt, you've got good contacts over in, in the USA. You keep your eye on things over there. What what have your impressions been of the of the last few months? Because there have been there have been a a lot of shows. As I think, you know, America's a different market in so from, from you know, it's, it's a bigger market, it's a bigger place. Um, you know, th- there's obviously restrictions because of travel. Um, you know, certain areas in America have been hit harder at different times with COVID as well. Right. So I think it's been harder for them. You know, I know Top Rank had the bubble in Las Vegas. Obviously, you know, Al Heyman on Showtime and Fox, they're, they're kind of up and running again. And like, like Al said, they have a big card this Saturday, which will, you know, will have happened by the time this goes out and there. But I think certainly Top Rank's bubble in Las Vegas, you know, they got back up and running. There were fights made. You know, were they great fights? There were, there were okay fights, I think, um, right. you know, as well. Got going with BT. They were the, they were the trailblazers. 
Yeah, they were the trailblazers, exactly. They were the, you know, they were the ones who went first. Same with Frank on BT. But I think Eddie, in terms of the UK being smaller, with travel, not being such a restriction, although, you know, we didn't have overseas opponents, but we had some really good, you know, 50-50 type domestic mm-hmm. clashes, which actually people bought into. The fights yeah. lived up to the expectations. And I think Eddie's fight camp over the four weeks, every single week, we had some really... I really agree. Bad- I thought that was remarkable. You know, so I think that America has more problems than us just because of the yeah. size and because of travel restrictions. But I'm pretty sure this this Saturday night, like I say, it, this will have happened by then. But this is a this is an ambitious card. I think the Derry, yeah. the Revianchenko and Charlo fight for me, that's a great fight. Yeah, I, I that, that was really you know I think your your analysis was 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 right right on um, and. And you, you are right about the two places having kind of uh, being different and having kind of different challenges to, to meet. And, and what you said, I have to say, and I'm not just pandering to, to your audience, in, in the UK, you are, if I would have guessed which of the two areas we're going to find a way to put on good competitive matches with that didn't need superstars to fuel the, the, the promotion. I would have rightfully guessed the UK. And in fact, that's truly what happened. Top rank did it and did it to, with, to some degree of success. It was an uneven ride for them. Uh, but they all my hats off to them for, for getting it done. And they did have some nice fights. But the consistency of the of the matches that were made uh, uh, in your area was mu- was overall much better. Okay, well, we'll kind of leave the current scene uh, alone just there because there are so many things that that we could talk to you about. So many interesting things, and I definitely want to take you take you back in time to the beginning because I was reading some some fascinating stuff in your book. Actually, I, I was rereading it today. I've read it before. It's. Uh, 30 years, 30 undeniable truths about boxing, sports and TV. And as you said before we hit record, it is light reading. It's, it's fun stuff. And I'm going to pay a bit of a tribute to you now, Al. I should really oh, be more, I, I should really be more smartly Don't dressed. Don't make my head any bigger than it might be. <laughs> I should really be more smartly dressed, possibly with some music. The lighting in here is quite soft, though. Uh, not that people can <laughs> see that. But... I remember reading this book a while ago and one of the reasons why I have a lot of admiration for you is not just because of the obvious ability and talent you have for the job, more so probably it's because of the way you go about the job, of the way you conduct yourself, of the attitude you have towards it. And the reason I say that is because when you're trying to make your way in this in this business, you come across a lot of people whose MO is to shout as loud as they can, draw as much attention to themselves as they can, a lot of the time behave almost as unpleasantly as they can. They, they feel that that is the way to get on, that that is the way to, to get column inches, to get clicks, to get likes, to get retweets and, and, all, and all these other types of things. And, and at times when, I, when I've had some bleak periods myself and everybody has them, I have thought to myself, fuck, like, I'm not going to have to do that, am I, to, to get on in this business, knowing that I couldn't do it, that I just couldn't do it anyway. It wasn't an option for me. 
But then, you know, you look at people like yourself and, and Steve Farad, um, who we spoke to on the podcast as well a, um, a few months ago, about a year ago now, actually. And there are, there are others in other sports too, but it just gives you real hope, if you like, as a, as, a, as a younger guy that actually, no, you don't have to behave like that. You don't. That's not the way you do it. If you want to achieve longevity, being a good bloke matters. Behaving yourself matters. Taking your job seriously, but not yourself too seriously matters. That That is that is how you do it. So, I mean, you know, you, you, you've done well not to turn crimson red there, but... Um, that's true what I say there, isn't it? Those, those are things that you've, you've always held dear as being things that really, really matter. Yeah, you hope they do. You really do. Um, we, you know, sportscasting has changed. Uh, it certainly has over here, and I, I'm there as well, I, because you're referencing it, um, where, as you say, some, you know, louder sometimes is better more controversial is better, whether it's, you know, whether it's, whether the controversy and the opinions are organic or not. Uh, And I, you know, I was at ESPN when they were kind of ushering in this form of opinion-based journalism as opposed to information-based journalism uh, or sportscasting, I should say. And, you know, I believe that sportscasting is better when it's information-based. And when I say that, I just don't mean, well, he had five knockouts or he's, you know, he's, he, he averages 30 punches around, not just that information, but insightful information where you're, you're letting somebody know that this fighter in the gym worked hard on his jab. That's information. That's that, you know, uh, or, or, or insight that of the kind that, you know, Matthew regularly gives on, 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 on fight cards and hopefully all of us that are analysts do it, uh, that, you know, that's to me is providing something beneficial for the viewer. Um, and the other question and it's the central one you, you kind of address there is Don Dunphy, the great broadcaster who I reference a lot in the book, as you know, uh, who I got to meet in 1985, you know, he'd been the voice of boxing in the U S he's kind of the Harry Carpenter of the U S huh? would be a good way to put it. Um, you know, he, he, I met him in 1985. He was already, you know, well along in years and had pretty much retired, but, um, we got to be really good friends. He became a mentor to me and his son, uh, Bob Dunphy, ironically is the director of our Showtime boxing. And, uh, he said to me, he said, you are never more important than the event you're doing. And that simple bromide, uh, is kind of the thing that is the, the, the differentiation, the marker, if you will, between a certain grand brand of sportscaster and another brand of sportscaster. Some people want to be bigger than the event. They want to, uh, to usurp what's happening in front of them. And, uh, I just, you know, I'm, my feeling is that's not the right way to go. And Matt, it's, it, it is interesting, isn't it? Because there's been a lot of talk over the last few years about fake news, about people now not really being interested in experts, not really being interested in facts. But boxing, as Al says, it's, it's a sport of record, but insight doesn't just come with how many fights someone's had and how many they've won and how many they've lost. But 
you, you need your opinions need to be informed. They need to be based on That's something. Right. They need to be based opinions. on something That's real. Exactly right. Well put. They need to be based on something real, don't they? And and, and we 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 see we see plenty of of the the alternative method, if you like. But it's not one that either of us is going to uh, reach for anytime soon. No, it's um. It, it's it's a funny thing that you talk about actually Tom. it made me as you were speaking i was just thinking back to a conversation i had in between one of the fights during fight camp uh, uh with mike costello and steve bunce we, we was in between fights and they were over at the uh hatch where i was commentating from and uh, we were talking about how you know years you know how the media has really changed within boxing years ago you had certain writers george kimball ron borges whoever got guys like that who you knew that you know, this guy, if he writes, I trust his report on a fight. You know, you couldn't just watch, uh, there was no Sky Plus or, you know, uh, you couldn't on demand. It was like you missed the fight, you missed the fight, unless you got a, a videotape of it maybe. But you'd read the report of these fights and there were certain guys, boxing scribes, boxing journalists, whose opinion, you know, you really respected and you, you, you'd read their work and they'd explain the fight. And you knew they had a good read of a fight and they would write in a, a very insightful way that described the action. And you trusted their opinion because, you, you know, you, you followed them and you read many reports. He said, nowadays, he goes, you've got guys turning up at a press conference who basically, again, talking about who shouts the loudest, who's relentless on Instagram and Twitter. And he's got a following of 300,000 just because he's relentless. Doesn't mean he's informative. Doesn't mean he's insightful. Doesn't mean he can read a fight. But he's relentless. He's absolutely relentless on social media. Does that make him an expert? No, it doesn't. You know, but, but someone like, you know, again, the George Kimball, the Ron Borges, all these people, the Thomas Houses of the world, people who you know who have been following the game and writing the game, Mike Costello, Steve Bonds, Al Bernstein, you know, he, 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 he writes a column. He, you know, he's a commentator. But if he was to write in a, uh, a write-up on a fight, I would read that fight and I, it would carry weight with me because I know that Al knows what he's talking about, but Joe Bluggs, who's got 500,000 followers on Instagram because he does 20 posts a day and he uses hashtags and he includes people and he's, right. he, he's going to the opening of an envelope. That doesn't mean to me that he's got that. I'm not necessarily going to read his and take his word for how he's read that fight. So I think media as, you know, social media, media within boxing, it, it has changed things a little bit, but I think it's important that we don't lose, you know, um, we don't just buy into whoever's got the biggest following or whoever makes the loudest noise right. or whoever shouts that. You know, Stephen A. Smith, you know, that, that's a guy who's pretty vocal on ESPN. Now, I don't know. Does, am I going to listen to Stephen A. Smith talk about Manny Pacquiao and Floyd Mayweather? Or am I going to listen to an Al Bernstein, a Steve Farhood, a Thomas Hauser? I know who I'm listening to. Hey, hey, ki- hey, kids. Hey everybody, sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in hell, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes, it's called the Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to the Desiring Capital podcast coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go.
Yeah, that's, uh, those are really valid points. And you approach it from, here's the other thing that I find interesting. I always, I always try to think of what, do, what would a boxer think? You know, what would, what would you think when you hear me say something on a broadcast or, I mean, I think of that all the time. Uh, some people say you shouldn't think of that. I'm not saying I'm thinking, oh, will he like me or, or, or can I curry favors? But I do mean if I criticize you or not criticize even, but let's say I, I talk about something you're doing in the ring. If you're a reasonable guy, which I think you know, most fighters are kind of at the end of the day, while they're confident, they know what they, they also know what happened in the ring. Will you think I was accurately describing it? And if I say, uh, you know, something, are you guys going to think that's idiotic? I mean, me and my little, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of people that commentate have never, I mean, I've had like, I had like 40 amateur bouts. So that doesn't really qualify me to be a brilliant pundit, but it's enough to at least to know what it feels like to be in the ring and have somebody hit you. So, but that isn't, but for all intents and purposes, for a fighter, they're just looking at me as a guy that is commentating on the, on the, the fight without being at a championship level, certainly. I don't want two boxers sit in the ring that we're going to go, are going to go home and watch that broadcast and say, what is this imbecile talking about? You know, I don't, I really, really don't want that. That is, that would be the worst possible thing. And it's same as true if you're covering a, a fight, writing about it or whatever. You want to, to gain some credibility. And one of the things is that because of the social media, there's no gatekeeper. They don't have an editor in many cases, right? So George Kimball and, and Borges and those guys, while they are co were competent journalists, they, number one, they had rules in their writing, right? They couldn't just all of a sudden in the middle of a news story about a fight uh, throw in 14 opinions. They're going to have to have a, some of it is judgmental, uh, but it's not, that's not the basis of the whole story. And they had people looking over their shoulder, people saying, well, you know, you can't do that in a news story and you can't do this. And now that doesn't necessarily exist. It, it does in some places, but not, you know, on the internet. No, that's, that, that's absolutely true. And, and when people ask me what's changed since I've been doing this, which is, is, 20 years um the digital revolution is the main thing because you can put yourself to air essentially immediately publish yourself immediately and you don't have anyone telling you whether you are of the required standard to be doing that yet and the way i came up was at the a radio, radio station and, and like you you've your career is a perfect you know you've you've worked you know you've done different roles a bunch of different roles which has been great to give you experience and you work with different a lot of different people i know and you've taken from each of those experiences and each one has pushed you up to another level you know has made you uh uh understand some other form of this business and uh you know and the same is true with fighters like like matthew you know when when they get on they're they're uh, primarily because they're uh, a champion and and they they understand the nature of it but then and matthew you could speak to it better than me but every time you broadcast and every time you interact with another professional and every time you understand what it's about you get to be that much better a broadcaster right 
Oh, absolutely. It's as simple as this. The more you do it, the better you get. Yeah. And, and you never stop. I mean, even now I'm retired in my own career, you, you, you still never stop learning in boxing. Or you might learn the same thing, or you, you might just be reminded of something that maybe you just overlooked a little bit before, before the fight. But, you know, every week we're calling fights with Sal Fandy and, and, you know, the whole Sky team. And, you know, it's um, it, the longer I do this, the more I do it, the more comfortable you get, the more... Um, yeah, I think I suppose it's as simple as that. The more you do it, the better you yeah. get. Yeah, and and you're learning different ways to communicate. You're figuring out. You know the sport, of course. You were an excellent fighter, and you're and you and you're cerebral in your approach to it. So you know what what to you know what you're looking at. But you're you're finding more better ways and more uh, fan friendly ways, and 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 just uh, you know improving on conveying that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it does come down to as well sticking to sticking to your your principles of how you think it should be done, and that's that's why I raised this really was because I would look at yourself and, and Steve and, and and other people. Ian Dark was somebody I listened to a lot when I was when I was when I was a teenager. I always thought he was fantastic, and you have to work out how you think it should be done and stick to that, right. despite the fact that you might. Sometimes that's hard, isn't it, Andy? You you raised it. You're here navigating this career, and you're a young man, and you're you're right in the thick of it. And I remember very much my feelings. Sometimes, I mean, I'm the I'm a perfect example of it because I took that approach, and because I wasn't, I could not, I wasn't even, I wasn't a character exactly. Though, though I, ironically, because of my performing, I do a lot of musical performing, and I do a lot of other things. I'm. I'm out there doing something, you know, I, you'd think I would bring that into broadcasting more or somehow I'd be the one that would be more flamboyant or more whatever, but I don't because that's not the job. And I can't, you can't turn yourself into a character. As you point out, you can't be something you're not. So you're always thinking this other guy's getting way more attention than me right now or the, whoever it is. Should I alter my approach a little bit? Is that, is that what's required? Uh, you're always playing that game with yourself. And, and I think more often than not, it's better if you stay the course. Yeah, I think, uh, go on, I was going to say, Andy, I think it's absolutely key that you stay, you meant you said the word organic earlier, authentic, you've got to be authentic. And, and eventually, that's what stays the course. That, that, that's, there's longevity in being authentic. You might be, you know, the flash in the pan that jumps on something that's kind of hip or in the trend at the minute. But if it's not who you really are, it won't last. People see through that. You know, I remember when Joe Calzaghe, when Nassim Hamad was knocking everyone out and he was jumping the ropes and he had his hands down and he was saying, you know, I'm the best, I'm this and that. And then Joe Calzaghe was coming through and knocking guys down. He was doing the same thing and it just did not work because it wasn't Joe. You know, it wasn't Right, really, not his nature, no. It wasn't his nature and it just didn't work. And, you know, eventually he, he just went back to being who, who he really is. But, yes. you know, even though I'm talking about boxing and the show beside of boxing it, I'd imagine it's the same being a broadcaster you've got to be true to yourself right well it's absolutely true and I think people you know need to find their their you know you you you, you have to do I just did an interview with uh Holt McCannelly who's a fine actor I don't know if you guys ever saw the show Mindhunter it was on Netflix and he he also played a boxer and uh, he's very involved in boxing he played Teddy Atlas on a movie and he and we and he was talking about even in acting he said you 
you have to know to turn roles down. You have to know what you're capable of, who you can be, uh, how you how you can channel who you are into doing roles. And and if you don't know who you are, you can't even even though acting's all about becoming someone else and and investing yourself in another character. First, you have to really know who you are so you know which parts of you you can shed and you can become. And I think it's, it's true if you're going to be authentic uh, as a broadcaster. But we have seen a lot of people get huge success. One person's name already came up in this broadcast. <laughs> I think we can all guess who that person was, uh, not on the other <laughs> side of the pond. Uh, who's had monstrous success being a caricature of who he probably is. I don't know. Um, I mean, I'm not around him all the time. So, uh, and other people have done that as well. We, 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 you know, we, we're now in a kind of in a society in journalistically in sports where it's almost mandatory to have an opinion on everything. And sometimes you want your opinion to be contrarian, even if that's not what you think. There is. There's, there's, that's always been the go-to for, for some people. But we will keep fighting the good fight, gentlemen. That's what there we shall go. keep. I agree. Look that's at, what we'll keep doing. A, we got off on a, quite a tangent there, didn't we? Well, that's, that's how we like it on Macklin's Take. We just kind of introduce hey, something. That's the thing about podcasts. You can do that, right? You can, you can. I'm, I'm a master of going off on a tangent. Andy pulls me back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, hey. Okay, so uh, I'm going to steer us in a particular direction now because I want to go back to, I want to go back to the early days of ESPN because there's some great stories about this in, in your book. And, and what I really like about any story like this we spoke to Glenn McCrory about the early days of Sky and he was saying that when he agreed to work for Sky, I think he described it as a collection of porter cabins uh, out the back of a hard shoulder somewhere. Uh, and, and people were saying to him, why are you going to work for them? You know, that, that dishes on the side of houses, that's never going to work, Glenn, you're mad. America was 10 years ahead uh, in terms of the technology and the, and the consumption of, of media and TV, as, as has generally been the case. Um, and ESPN is absolutely enormous now. I mean, it's an absolute behemoth, but it wasn't like that then. And, and you are one of these, when you're on the ground floor or something and you've got that underdog spirit and you're all flying by the seat of your pants, that's when you get the real memories and the real comedy gold, isn't it? And, and there was definitely plenty of that early doors. What was it like? Yeah, the, yeah the, very well put. Uh, I, you know, that period, ESPN got started in 1980 when cable television in the United States was in its infancy. And when I started on ESPN and I was, you know, I kind of grew with it. Uh, they were in about 3 million homes in America. Uh, and many of the, uh, uh, you know, many Americans weren't seeing it uh, and didn't know what it was. Uh, I tell a story in the book uh, about, about uh, a time when we were doing a fight in uh, Chicago and uh, this was cable television had not come to Chicago yet. So there was this big truck, the TV trucks outside of this place, the Aragon ballroom in, in Chicago, which was in a neighborhood that was, you know, a little dicey. Uh, so, you know, the Chicago police were on the lookout for things and they saw this truck, this big truck parked outside the Aragon ballroom 
with these letters on it that they had no idea what those were, ESPN, right? They didn't know what that was. That could have been a front for, you know, let's go steal things. And they saw people coming out with equipment from the, the, the Aragon ballroom. And they said, we got a robbery in our hands here. They called other, they called for other squad cards. They got there, they surrounded the TV truck, went into the truck with their guns drawn and found the producer there who was ready to have a panic attack, right? And they, it took that producer a long time to explain to them they were a TV network <laughs> and they were there to do a boxing match that night. Um, Cause they just didn't know. They, Chicago police had no idea what ESPN was. So um, those are the kind of things that ESPN faced early in its, uh, in its infancy. Uh, and we were doing it on the seat of our pants, you know, the, it was a, the production uh, budget was like, you know, $8 and 42 cents a show. And, uh, and it was, it, we were literally like a bunch of people doing community theater, you know, uh, except it was going on TV. And as the network grew and the boxing show was one of the staples of ESPN for the first four or five years of its existence. Um, because they didn't have the rights to show to do uh, like they do now to do Major League Baseball and NFL and big golf tournaments and everything, they you know they had monster truck races and boxing. Matt, Matt it's, it's it's interesting to hear that, isn't it? Because when when you see how things grow and how the landscape changes, it's amazing to think that the ESPN were once, but but of course they were the new. You know the new kid, the new kid in school, and, and maybe the kid that nobody really wants to be there because that—that's another challenge, isn't it? When you're new, the, the established order—they don't—they don't want newcomers. They don't like change. No, there was—we were treated. It is interesting because, like, at one point, ABC bought ESPN, and and you know we had went ESPN went through about several owners at the beginning, and you know every time we got a paycheck, I was running to the bank to you know hoping that it didn't bounce and that you you know you were going to get through. And the people at ABC, many of them, looked down at us at ESPN. And when the, you know, the, 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 the tide changed and ESPN became this, it started to become this monolith, everything churned and the ESPN people were on top and the ABC people were kind of below them. And uh, I'm, you know, I think some of the ESPN people may have uh, gotten some reciprocity <laughs> at that point. But... Um, but you're right. They, they, you know, we were thought of as these cats and jammer kids trying to, uh, trying to, you know, put on television. It was perfect for me because I was not known to a national audience. I got a chance to grow with it. I got a chance to do everything. You know, I, I, I was able to, uh, I talked them into letting me do play by play, which I wanted to do. I did interviews. I did studio shows. I did everything because if you were willing to do it, and at that point, I wasn't getting paid that much money. Uh, if you were willing to do it, they were happy to have you do it. And uh, so it was, it, was a, a, it was a truly amazing experience. And because the Top Rank Boxing Show went to, we had 47 shows a year. It was unbelievable, right? We were on the road constantly. And we'd go into these small towns in America. Uh, and it was the 80s. So I guess I don't need to explain any further about that. Uh, <laughs> where everyone seemed to have a very good time, including all of us. And, and we were going into all these small venues and we were like the circus traveling around the United States. So it was, it was an intriguing time. 
you know, I couldn't help um, think that when you were talking Al, about the early days at ESPN and how, you know, cable TV and no one really had it. And it was such a kind of change. And Andy mentioned about Glenn McCrory talking about the early days at Sky when no one had that's Sky. Yeah, that, that's that's very analogous. Yeah. And it, it made me think to the current state where we are now. And you've gone from the pay-per-view model and HBO and Showtime to HBO stepping away from boxing after nearly, I think, 50 years in the sport. And then you've got the, you know, the evolution of the streaming platforms, the zone. And is that kind of similar to how it was back then? Do you think we're going through another revolution? Yeah, that's a very good point. It does, because it all changes at very, you know, you do have these constant changes and you, everybody becomes a trailblazer. Like a perfect example, you brought the zone. There, they, that, as an entity, not just the boxing, but all the rest of it that they're doing, they're trying to blaze a trail, aren't they? They're trying, they're taking what they believe is the next step, which is uh, television not being the sole arbiter of what you see uh, and, and trying to take the, you know, the digital platform and make it a dominant one. So you're right. The more things change, the more they, they stay the same because you're always there's always a new horizon, uh, and that is probably the new horizon now. And uh, and and what we're doing right now, the podcast. I, you know, I I got dragged into doing podcasts. I've got my own podcast, Al Bernstein Unplugged, that I've been doing for some months. It turned into a TV show in the United States, amazingly to me, and within like about two two months. But but uh, still, the podcast. This is a, a breakthrough because. Normally, you'd have to do this on a radio station, wouldn't you, to reach your fans and people that see you? But now we can do it like this. No, totally, to- totally. I mean, what made me really think with the zone was when you mentioned about how an ESPN at that time there was no major uh, league baseball rights, there was no NFL rights. There really, it was just the boxing, and that's kind of how the zone is in the US right now. But yeah, right. it just made me think that right now, okay, maybe they're only, you know, going with the boxing, but will that change and will the zone get the NFL? Will they get the NBA? And will that, you know, consolidate and solidify their position within boxing? How yeah, they've, done, they've clearly done some of that on an international basis. Uh, and, 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 and that was kind of the driving force. They use boxing as the entree right now. You know, there's there things are a little sensitive for them, it appears. Uh, but will it go, lead to that next step? And if they're not the ones that that get it done, will the next group be the one that gets it done? Hey, everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Noko Moto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Noko Moto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I think, was, is it, were Google not something like the 12th search engine? Something mad like that, you know? Yeah, right. There's, that's a perfect example. You know, right. maybe the zone's yeah. the guinea pig. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They didn't. It, it's not always the first one that get, get, gets the, the job done. Well, that's it. History shows, doesn't it, that you generally need quite a lot of uh, iterations, as they call it, in these things before before it's it's ready for people to to accept. But before we leave the good ship ESPN, 
Um, this came up on Twitter not that long ago. People were saying, what was the name of that guy who came out of the crowd to fight Tommy Morrison? And I knew because I, because obviously it's something you talk about in your book. But I mean, this is just like a classic boxing story. And we can't have you on without you telling it. So tell us about the evening uh, where you met Tim Tomashek. Yeah, this was... Uh, uh, Tommy Morrison was... Uh, defending his title uh that he had uh, that he had won uh, against George Foreman right and and he was doing it at home uh he was going to fight um uh, Mike Williams and it was a you know it was a contender but not a top contender and it was like a kind of a let's go home and showcase my championship and then next up for him uh was supposed to be the fight with Lennox Lewis that they were going to do at the uh, MGM Grand, and it was going to open the MGM Grand, and it was going to be a major, major event. Uh, uh, well, be, I'm, I'm really telling the story wrong. That was with Michael Bent, but in in this case, he's he was fighting Mike Williams at at um, in Kansas City, and uh, Mike Williams at the at the uh, uh, that night left the arena. He just left he he got uh um decided he was gone and uh, this was about an hour before the show was going to start and they literally had nothing they didn't know what to do and espn didn't didn't always put on championship fights at that point and this was a special that was uh you know planned for uh for that night and so nobody wanted to not have the show go on well they knew that Tim Tomaszek, who was kind of like a, a veteran, kind of a journeyman fighter, was in the building. And somebody came up with the idea of going to approach him to say, do you want to fight Tommy Morrison? And he had fought some heavyweights and he was, uh, they called him the doughboy, and he was like a professional opponent, you know. But they went up to him and of course, by that point he'd already had two beers and a hot dog. <laughs> and, uh, they asked him, would you fight Tommy Morrison? He said, sure, right? So he came down uh, and managed to go four and a half rounds or so with Tommy Morrison, put on quite a show. At one point he got him in a headlock and he was giving him a noogie, I think, on the head. Uh, and, and he was a character. And then his post-fight interview with me uh, was, is a classic. And if anybody, you know, if you want to have some laughs, go Google me and Tim Tomaszek uh, and you'll see this interview. It was hysterical. Uh, and it landed him a shot, a spot on the David Letterman show. Uh, and it was, it was just a riot. And, uh, and it's become something of boxing folklore and, and there's some debate as to whether they really did go find him in the stands. I can tell you that that's exactly what happened. I suppose the good thing about having a few points beforehand is you wouldn't have the nerves. <laughs> exactly. Right. He says, exactly. So he thought, well, why not? I'll go fight Tommy Morrison. And that was very much the nature of Jim Tomaszek. Anyway, he worked at Shopco, a store, a big chain store here in the United States. And that's how he started the interview. He said, hey, I work at Shopco. Hey, all my friends are watching. Hey, you know, he had that upper Midwest accent, uh, you know, as I... You know, my in my many navigating through uh, the UK, I've learned of all the regional dialects that you guys have. And in the United States, we have them as well, as you well know. And uh, he had that upper Midwest kind of 
twang. Uh, and, uh, but it was, he was a, he was a riot. And uh, we had those kind of situations happen on that series all the time. I mean, rings would break. Uh, we had two blackouts, you know, where the, the arena went black. Uh, you name it. If it could happen, it would happen. And part of the reason was we were going to these small towns where these, these local regional promoters, local commissions that weren't super experienced in television boxing. And so inevitably, right, you, you know you're going to run into uh, incidents. Um, and they were one time Ernie Terrell, a former heavyweight champion, was promoting a fight in Chicago. And we were coming on the air. And as we hit the air, they were still finishing the ring. Uh, and we had the vamp at the beginning of the show while they finished the getting the ring and Ernie's up there in his vest and his, took his suit off and he's, he's helping them finish up the ring. So, and at one point the producer said, Hey, you have to stop. So we took a chance that somebody wasn't going to fall through the ring or whatever, you know, and they didn't amazingly. Oh, were you in Vegas the night that, uh, the fan man landed in the ring for the boat. I was. Yeah. I was covering that fight for Sports Center, and I, it, the way I was facing, he came in over my head. Uh, I was looking that way. And I started to see people reacting in a crazy way, and I was like, wow, what are they? And then, of course, I saw him land. Uh, and uh, and then it, uh, Rock Newman and his uh, crew started beating him up, <laughs> which is... <laughs> <laughs> of course, right? Why not? Uh, what else would they do? And uh, and it was just the craziest thing ever. But it does speak to the fact that um, you know um, anything can happen in boxing, and it, it and it likely will. But particularly, I think in. In 1990s, heavyweight boxing was absolutely mental because I, I got really obsessed with it during lockdown. And you just look at that decade, the way it started with Tyson Buster Douglas, and you've got things like Fan Man, you've got Riddick Bowe throwing a belt in a bin, you've got Tyson biting Holyfield, you've got Holyfield there throughout the whole thing, you've got George Foreman coming back and winning world titles. Oliver and then, McCall has a, a nervous breakdown in the ring. Yeah, yeah, I mean, what what, what a decade. decade. You know, you, you talk, talk about, about the, 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 the lunacy of, of, of what can happen in boxing. And you describing there the things that happened in the early days, that, that explains a lot, actually, because I remember when we were in Cardiff for, I think, the fight against Takam or Parker. I'm not sure which one it was, but at ringside, during the ring walk, all the power went down. The power went down. We couldn't communicate with the truck. We didn't have any monitors, any TV screens. Anthony's music, Anthony Joshua was cut out in the stadium. And the coolest man in press row was Al Bernstein by some distance. Um, and I think that's probably because uh, you'd been there and you'd seen it before. But but even at the very highest level, these things these things can happen, can't they? It's, it's, it's incredible. It does. Yeah, boxing lends itself to that. I, I don't know why exactly, but more... Uh, more nutty things happen. And just when you think you've seen the last of what could happen, you know, something else will. So it's, I mean, that's part of what makes it fascinating too. You know, we're, we're drawn to the, of course, the excellence of the boxers and the excitement they create, but, but boxing is a colorful sport on every level. And, uh, uh, and it, you know, it has been that for a long, long time, especially, and, and especially in your area where, you know, it is such a uh, a staple and where uh, the tradition of the sport is, you know, so ingrained in the countries and in the, uh, and the people and the sporting fans. 
Yeah, I think in boxing there's more characters and lunatics than in any other sport. And I think Probably these. True. Yeah. I think is that I think true? Been, you think that's true over there in all your even given your other sports, and we have them here too. But there's more. There's more characters in boxing, right? Yeah, and I, and I think also you get guys that can penetrate it with pretty much relative ease. They don't have to go through too much of a right. A, a, yeah, but, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. There's a pecking order. You got to go through certain channels, but in boxing, you just show up and there you are. That's it, man. You go to the gym and carry someone's sports bag enough days on the bounce, and suddenly you're in the corner. <laughs> and eventually, you're a trainer, right? Yeah. I used to have a friend of mine who was the, the head of theater. He was a, a theater director in Chicago. And there was a big proliferation of theater companies that opened in Chicago. It's a great theater town. And a lot of these people were getting to be directors who probably weren't qualified. And he said, he said, what did they do? Put their hands on a rock and say, I am a director. And I always remember that line because later on, I thought about it as it relates to people that were boxing trainers. Did they put their hands on a rock and say, I'm a boxing trainer, you know? Because uh, while, of course, many trainers were very competent and terrific, some, you know, we wonder where, as you point out, did they just walk into a gym and, figure out how to carry the bucket right, and then there, there they are. It's, it is amazing. Uh, uh, another thing I, I spent a bit of time on during lockdown was was reading a book about about Harold Smith uh, and Muhammad Ali professional sports, which was 1979-1980. It's if if you don't know what I'm talking about, we haven't really got time to get into it because it's an unbelievable story. But just Google Harold Smith boxing, and you won't quite believe what you read. Um, so we, we talked about what a decade the 90s was and there are two heavyweight careers that you took in in their, in their entirety, in Mike Tyson and, and Lennox Lewis. So I was just keen to have a quick chat with you about those two because Tyson, still one of the most recognisable people in the world, I would say, at 50-odd, whatever he is now, because the, the fascination with him has always been an absolute fever pitch. And you would have seen him right from the beginning. And Lennox, I know, is someone you you have a lot of admiration for as a fighter and, and, and as a person. And, and they couldn't really be more different, I suppose. Would you play? Would you place them as the two premier heavy, premier heavyweights of their period, or or not? Would Evander Holyfield get, get in yeah, there too? Three of them, I think. You know, each they they they, they formed an interesting trio, even though uh, you know. They their fights with each other were were spaced out in kind of an odd way, but still, the three of them represented the uh, a, a interesting dichotomy. And and I, you know, I covered as you pointed out, I covered the Tyson. I, I did his first. I did about six of his first eight fights. Uh, we was on the ESPN series, and uh, and then. I did the first of his fights and I did the last two of his fights when he fought McBride and Danny Williams. Um, so I, I bookended his career, but missed a big part of it when he was at HBO. Um, and I wasn't with Showtime when he was fighting with Showtime. So I missed a portion of it, but I always covered the Tyson uh, uh, phenomena through sports center. Uh, and, and uh, so Lennox Lewis, on the other hand, I also didn't get to announce a lot of his fights because they were on HBO. But again, I covered his fights all the time at SportsCenter and spent a lot of time interacting with him and 
and and, and watching him on here in America gain acceptance, gain fans, and uh, get recognized uh, probably later than he should have uh, as the force he was in the, the heavyweight division. And I, I have always said that, uh, and I've taken grief on uh, talk radio shows in America for my for forever when I come out and make this statement. And sometimes, I, I, even though I totally believe it, I do it just to rankle them that Lennox Lewis at the end of the day at his absolute best is the best heavyweight that ever lived because he would not be beaten by any of the heavyweights. And that includes Ali. Uh, He at his absolute best fighting tall in shape, focused on a fight. We've yet to see a heavyweight who would be able to solve the puzzle of Lennox Lewis. and uh, so I have great, do have great respect for him. And, uh, uh, and I think what he brought to the sport was, was uh, something that, you know, was needed at that time because you pointed out that it was a, you know, it was an odd time where only weird things seemed to happen in the heavyweight division. And even Evander Holyfield, who had, you know, his reputation as being religious and all the rest, he was involved in some crazy stuff. Uh, you know, and even on his end, you know, all of a sudden he got healed after he thought he had, after he, he, they said he had a heart condition and there was all kinds of wacky things going on. Uh, but those three men, different as they were, provided a very interesting trio, uh, you know, for that period. I've got to throw a fourth one into the equation there. And, it, you know, he never fought Tyson and unfortunately... Lennox Lewis, but I thought Riddick Bowe was a great fighter in the 90s as yeah, well. Yeah, Riddick Bowe, it was a shorter period. Yes, I agree. And his his run was too brief because of of things that he, you know, he threw roadblocks in his own way in terms of conditioning and all the rest of it. Uh, but it should have been, he's right, he should have been the fourth, the fourth member of that group and for a longer period of time. And there was a period, I think, in your you're kind of alluding to that, and I'd be curious to get your opinion. There was a point at which he looked like he might be the best heavyweight by far uh, and and pot- a potential great heavyweight of all time, right? Yeah, I thought he was. I mean, that first fight he had with the Vandy Holyfield, if he could have just gone on from strength to strength with that. Like you say, if he didn't That's have right. trouble outside the ring, you know, he had those two fights with Galata when basically through the first fight, he completely threw it away. Uh, yeah, so he, Galata threw it away. Yeah. You know, he just wasn't performing Bow that night. But he had been a great fighter. Obviously, he had the two wins against Hollyfield as well. You know, I thought him and Lewis would have been a great fight. Yeah, I agree. And even though they had the, the, the trilogy with Hollyfield, Riddick Bow was somebody who never quite lived up to his expectations. And, uh, um, and it was frustrating, I think, to a lot of boxing fans because they looked at him and said, you're – and, of course, the fact that he never fought Lennox Lewis, which was, you know, one of the – that's one of those fights that, you know, boxing has many of those fights, right, where we say, oh, why didn't it happen? That That's the ultimate example, right? Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun 
we're recruiting you. We are the one stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan. New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts. One Star Recruits. So it must have been really interesting to to cover Tyson early and then to cover him right at the very end. And as you say, you're across his career all the way, all the way through. Because did you foresee problems with him down the road? Because when you look at his career, he burns so brightly, but for quite a short period of time, you could argue really that, well, I mean, it's, it's a fact rather than an argument. When he beat Michael Spinks in 1988, it was all downhill from there because Customato was out of the picture, had passed away a few years before. Jim Jacobs then passed away. Don King got involved and it all just... Did, did you... The benefit of hindsight is obviously always always great, but did you kind of look at him and just think, this is going to be very interesting whilst it lasts, but I'm not sure how long this will last? Well, there were... If you were close enough to know, to be aware of all of the stuff that happened early and up into Catskills and even as he was starting out as a heavyweight, it didn't, you didn't have to be Sherlock Holmes to figure out there may be issues. And it, and, and even though the, 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 the general narrative is, Oh, if he had just stayed with Customato and he'd live longer. And let me tell you something. That was an interesting crew at the Catskills. You know, you had Bill Caton, who is was a soul soulless man? He, Bill Caton had no soul. He was he was just that's the best way I can describe him. You know, uh, Jimmy Jacobs, who was a, a, a you know a great. He was probably the one stabilizing influence of that whole group uh, for 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 um, Tyson and his death. Actually, I think was more of a of a factor than even D'Amato. Uh, and Customato was an interesting man. I'll leave it at that. And the the whole situation there, people have the impression that somehow they were helping Mike Tyson. I always felt like they were just keeping the lid on Mike Tyson, that they did a better job of containing the what was likely to happen. And, uh, and the ways they did it uh, sometimes were probably not uh, necessarily beneficial to Mike Tyson. So while it's true that when he got with Don King, it kind of erupted. And that was just because Don King didn't try to keep the lid on very well. Uh, and, and, and that's, you know, where it ended up being, but you did get a little bit of the sense in the early times that there could, you know, it might not all be smooth sailing, but of course no one could anticipate the, the, all the, you know, the rem, the, um, the things that would happen. In terms of the story that he was, though, Matt, do you think, and Al, do you think we'll ever see anything like it, the Tyson kind of story, ever again? Because he burst through in the 80s when he was still mainstream as terrestrial TV. We talked about the emergence of ESPN. Not as many channels, not as many platforms. If you made it to main channel famous, then, wow, you really are famous. We're talking massive fame. I want to throw something out to you guys. It's harder now in America. I don't know how uh, so much how it is there, though. I sense it's still 
it's getting to be a little, it's a little harder for a, a, a boxer even there where boxing is a much more a part of the sporting scene and less of a niche sport to be a superstar overall. It might be a little tougher there. You guys know that way better than me. It's clearly harder here, but I'll tell you the one person in boxing who I think if he fought effectively for another three years would be that person happens to have the same name as the guy you're talking about. I think, I, it's Tyson Fury. I think it's Tyson Fury. He, he, he is already starting to cut across that. If he beats Deontay Wilder and he beats Anthony Joshua, which I don't, you know, I don't know if all those things are going to happen or if they'll make it happen, but it's certainly feasible. And he continues to be the Tyson Fury that we are seeing now. He is a character. He is funny. I remember doing, I did the Tyson Fury fights, right? We did them on Channel 5, uh, you know, when he was getting going. And that, when Tyson Fury had his bad period, everyone would ask me, oh, you know, this guy, what about him? I said, no, I remember him when we was just, we'd just be sitting there, you know, in a little room and he was charming and funny and and he was the kind of guy you wanted to hang out with. You, you, you got, you know, and he's managing kind of, again, we mentioned the word, you said the word kind of naturally, I said organic, you know, he's kind of reached a certain spot in life where he's comfortable showing us kind of who he is, but, and some of it's a little raw, but a lot of it is so charming that he's melding it together and he's cutting across some of these lines. I'd be curious to hear what you have to say about that. No, absolutely. I mean, it, it, I think it's more difficult now to become a superstar in boxing yes. because it's filtered out. It's, there's so many channels that, you know, if you're a football yes. fan, there's, a, there's almost a football channel. There's, there's so many different channels now. We're back in the day when it was just terrestrial TV. There was only a couple of channels. And if you were on that channel, exactly. every person in the nation would watch Same it. Same thing so here. You're going to be huge. You know, but that said, there's another side of that coin whereby – you know, every single person alive today has a platform, whether it's Instagram, YouTube, whatever, they've got a potential platform. Now, if they catch the imagination, if their right. character, and boxing is full of characters, it's full of fantastic stories. If you can get a guy that has the ability to, you know, go on and win titles and become a world champion, and he allows his personality and character uh, to be authentic and for it right. to flourish, and he can stay... Uh, at the top of his game for a, an extended period of time. Exactly. Then I think yeah. you can, they, the superstars can still happen. Like yeah, Tyson Fury, he's one of those yeah. guys. He's the one guy that has a chance to do that. He, he needs to keep winning for a little while. Like you said, he needs to sustain it. And he needs to continue to do what he's doing outside the ring. And, and he's getting enough of a push, you know, clearly there. He's, uh, he's well-known. He's getting enough of a push in the United States. And he's a crossover guy already in the United States. And uh, 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 so it's interesting. But it, it's, a harder, it's a harder get now in the sport of boxing, that's for sure. Is, is he the best, do you think, of the current crop at the moment, Fury? Probably, you know, because we've seen him beat Wilder and, and he won most of the rounds in the Wilder fight, even when he had the draw and he almost got knocked out and he was within a second of being knocked out, right? But you get the feeling and, and you know, we won't know until he fights Anthony Joshua, but clearly Anthony Joshua's stock went down a little bit from the, the loss to Ruiz. And 
I don't know the way he beat Ruiz the second time. He fought very well, but we certainly didn't expect to see the puncher, the big punching heavyweight who had built his reputation on that, have to be the pure boxer. Uh, and there weren't many risks taken by Anthony Joshua. So you have to, if they fought tomorrow, Tyson Fury would be the favorite, I would think. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he, you have to think of him, I guess, as the as the best of the group. And he is certainly at this point, I think, um, the most interesting. So we won't keep you too much longer. Um, we got started early on this because our fighter meetings finished early, but um, I can't I can't take liberties. Um, I do want to talk to you about Ricky Hatton, though, because Hatton Zoo that was that was a fight you covered, wasn't it? That you were sent yeah, over to the UK. A amazing uh, evening, and uh, you know, I that night was to me really extraordinary on every level. Here's. Costa Zoo coming over to fight right in Ricky Hatton's home home place. And Costa Zoo was already uh, a very established star and was it near the end of his career. We had no idea it was going to end that night, uh, which was uh, amazing. But uh, so amazing for him to come over to, across the pond to do that in Ricky Hatton's home area. That's amazing. The support that Ricky Hatton got in Manchester was staggering. Uh, and I have never been, you know, I'm not a believer, I'm not that big a believer in like, uh, uh, I, I believe what I can see, touch, and feel. But, uh, but there was, was something, something in the air that night, wasn't there? There was something there in was the air. There was something, right? Uh, correct? There was there magic was in the air that night. Yeah, there was something in the air that night. I mean, it was, it was, I never, and I never saw a crowd will a fighter like that, right? Um, and you're right, you know, you, you, your assessment of the evening is exactly right. And so it was, and I was going into the fight, I was a, you know, over, that was a period where I have to say, uh, in America, and you got you guys are keenly aware of this. Amer- America is is very jingoistic about just about everything, and especially about boxing. And that was a period where it, it somehow British fighters. I think that has that has diminished a great degree now, to a great degree. But Americans somehow always put you know, it made British boxers a half notch less than they were just because they were from the UK or for somehow that, you know, they were, you know, just biased against them. And so, I mean, I had that when I came over and did the Calzaghe Lacey fight. I said to everybody on the planet that, you know, everybody was picking Jeff Lacey to win that fight. Uh, the American uh, media, I think it was like 90%. And I had done Jeff Lacey's fights and I had done Joe Calzaghe fights. And I said, Joe Kazagi's a favorite in this fight. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Maybe Lacey will find a way to win, but Joe Kazagi is a favorite. So, uh, but, it, you know, and the same is true with Ricky Hatton. You know, they, th- there was this general sense of, oh, okay, well, he's kind of a fun fighter or whatever. I'm not saying I thought Hatton was going to pull the upset that night, but I certainly felt like he was in the hunt to do it. Now, then you start out that evening and 
you could feel the, 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 you know, the, the, the feeling in the building. And like I say, normally I wouldn't even put any stock in that, but Ricky Hatton fed off that energy. And, yeah. and it wasn't just that he fought a, uh, uh, an aggressive fight or, a, or, or he managed to harness the energy in a way, right, Matt, that he fought a smart fight. It was, a, yeah. he, he fought a, a good fight, you know, uh, and, and it was an extraordinary evening, uh, you know, just, to, and who would have ever thought that with that fight, maybe still hanging in the balance that zoo was going to quit on his corner on his stool. There was something in the air that night. And actually yeah. Billy, Billy Graham said before the fight, this was like three, four days before the fight. He said to me and my brother were in the gym. He'd read Johnny Lewis's book. He said, if this fight gets grueling, Johnny Lewis will pull him out. He loves Costa Sue and he wants him to retire. And of course, Interesting. that's what happened. I mean, Rick, the thing, wow, the, key that's Ricky, intriguing. the key for Ricky was he had to be in on top of Sue or way yeah. out. He couldn't get caught in that mid distance on the way in, but Ricky was very good at fainting and coming, covering the distance right. really quickly. And he got in on top of Sue. He was clinching. He made it physical. Yep. He set at an unbelievable pace. And in the end, it was Ricky's night. It was the youth. He just, the stars aligned for him. And, you know, it was a fantastic performance. And even though Sue was one of the best 140 pounders of all yeah. time, that, it, the, the stars aligned for Ricky that night, I think. There was something in the air. I agree. Yeah, you're 100% right. And it was one of the most, I'm going to say, for me, uh, that's in my top eight or nine, or my, I guess I'll make it 10 because we have to do everything in fives and tens, right? Uh, that was, that's one of my top 10 nights of ever going to announce a, a boxing match in 40 years. It was just amazing. Oh, and here's the, now here's the, here's the, the, you, can I tell you the, 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 the coup de grace story about that? So Russell Crowe, who of course was at the fight and big fan of Ricky Hatton, and I don't know if you guys know this part of the story, but so no, Costa Sue. Pardon? It was, it was Costa Sue. He tried Costa Sue trained him for the Cinderella man. Yeah, yeah, and he was right, and he was at the same hotel that we were all staying at, the Showtime people. And we came back to the hotel that night, and he was there with with a bunch of his pals, and they were distressed, of course, at what happened, and they were drinking, and they had gotten a head start on the drinking part. And of course, the fight was held very late. Uh, and we had to get a morning flight. And so I wasn't that much time. I, I got up, I went up to my room and there was only about, we only had like four hours between when that ended and we were going to come back. Why we were coming back on that flight, I have no idea, but we were. And we, we went up, we came down like, a, I came down about three hours later and I was with David Denkins, the executive producer of, of Showtime Sports. And there's, uh, Russell Crowe with his group still drinking at the bar and I fly home to America and they were talking to, we talked to them and they were going to leave on a flight just a little bit around after us. <laughs> I come home and when I get home finally, you know, was the, to, to Las Vegas, I, I turn on the news and there's a story I see Russell Crowe in the same suit that he had been in the night before being carted off by police because he, that was the time he threatened uh, a, uh, or tried to hit a, uh, uh, somebody in a hotel in New York. He had obviously flown back to New York, 
probably they continued drinking on the airplane flight and he was not exactly in a great mood and something happened at the hotel that was distressing and they didn't service him and he he, he attacked a uh, <laughs> somebody at the hotel and the police had to take him in and when i saw him in the same suit i'm like okay he had himself quite a night yeah, he, he doesn't mind to roll around on the cobbles, does he, Russell Crowe? By the uh, by, the sound of it. But but we cannot absolutely cannot let you go. Uh, and I'd forgotten about this, so it's good that you mentioned the the world of Hollywood. There, Rocky, of course, Rocky. As I understand it, you were supposed to be part of Rocky Three, but Showtime or whoever you were working for at the time decided that wasn't a good idea, um, and you were part of of Rocky Five. I mean, this is this is. To describe it as bucket list stuff, if you're working in boxing, is it just doesn't even begin to cover it because the Rocky franchise is, it's epic and legendary for 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 absolutely all the right reasons. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's you know it's amazing and yeah, I was Rocky Three. I was supposed to be in, but they were using a USA network was uh, had fights on just like we did. We had the Friday night ones and they had Tuesday night fights, and they were going to use the USA mic flag and so ESPN. And Stallone and them had asked me to do be the one of the one of the ringside commentators in the movie. And ESPN said, "No, we can't have him sitting behind a USA mic flag." Uh, so the funny thing is, if you look at the credits for that, they actually gave Stallone in an act of defiance. One, the guy that was like one of the commentators sitting there, he gave him the name Al Berdini. So. <laughs> Made me an Italian for now. I married an Italian, uh, Connie Rocco, so I so I be, kind of became a, a, an honorary Italian. But uh, but he, he that was that. two fingers up to you, Al. Pardon? That was two fingers up to you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> so that was funny. So but uh, but he uh, uh, yeah, and then I did get a chance to be in Rocky Five, which was fun. And those those you're right. Those franchises are you know the whole franchise is like a whole. It's kind of like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings. You know, it stands by itself as this amazing act, force of nature in the movie world. And just having any association with it, we like you say, here we are. Oh, here's the other funny thing. I swear, I'm not making this up. I will get a a check from you know SAG, the Screen Actors Guild. I will get a check still to this day about every three or four months from my work on Rocky five. Now they're sometimes they're $10. Sometimes they're $90. Sometimes they're $50, $120. It's not like I'm getting rich, but it is funny when you think about it, look how long ago that movie was and they're still making new deals to put it on, on TV. So it's, you know, it's kind of crazy. You've had a few dinners down to Rocky, I'll believe it at that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. That's funny. So what, what, what did you make of Tommy Morrison then? Because uh, did you have much, obviously you dealt with him as a fighter. Did you deal with him as a person when you were filming? Tommy Morrison, you know, had never acted. Here he was, almost a lead in the movie. I mean, he had tons of dialogue and whatever. And the scenes I was around, you know, when you do a movie, you know, you, you have to redo scenes over and over again. And he always knew his lines. They, John Avildsen, the, the director of this movie, had there were parts where he wanted to do a lot of takes because, you know, you different camera angles and everything. And Tommy Morrison never messed up a line. He, he wasn't Laurence Olivier, but 
he he was more than acceptable in that movie. I know the movie itself doesn't rank high on the on the list of great Rocky films, you know, with the exception of my performance, obviously. But <laughs> I mean, that elevated it. But yeah, you know, we're not going to talk about that. But 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 uh, um, but they but Tommy Morrison did a very good job, and I it's like one of the many things about his life. And I knew Tommy really well. It's one of the many tragedies of his life. Tommy Morrison should have lived a long life and he should have become an action movie star. I mean, for a period of time. That's what should have happened. He should have gotten his boxing thing done, become that, been a commentator, which he was for a short period of time. But I don't know if Tommy would have had the discipline to live that life, but that's what should have happened. And unfortunately, of course, it, it didn't work out that way. I watched a documentary that that was the ESPN documentary about him a few weeks ago, and it's it's a it's a really good watch. It's quite a harrowing watch. Um, the second half of it, anyway. They, but it is when they came to me to to interview me for it. I it was it was not. I, I was actually very bittersweet to remember that and remember all that stuff that went on with Tommy. Okay, so I think we'll I think we'll we'll wind it up there, Al. We'll wind it up there, and actually something that people will always have known you for a your motif almost has been the has been the mustache the, the goatee beard as you as you sport now but but one thing i discovered recently and, and people will will have formed the, the the uh the impression after this podcast that i am dangerously obsessed with al bernstein not the case it's uh it's it's it's, it's very healthy but i do know that that mustache was was under threat from what you could yeah. only describe as as facial hair fascism at espn in the early days but you were <laughs> You managed, like you managed to resist it. Yes, well, well put, well put. Yeah, I was, um, of course, now I've added a little as we get older, I guess it's the, the, the uh, fashion. Uh, I, you know, back then in the 80s, it, and, and I don't know how it has been, I don't know the answer to this, you guys would know in, in the UK, but sportscasters, like almost no sportscasters had facial hair. It just wasn't, for some reason, I mean, you know, they didn't, and it was almost a, a verboten. And I had the mustache, and I just, you know, didn't know any better, so I kept it. There would be efforts at various times to try and get me to shave the mustache off. And I don't even know how I managed to navigate through without getting fired and keeping the mustache. Because they made other people, Chris Berman had a mustache. He ended up, uh, you know, and he became an icon at, at ESPN. He ended up uh, shaving his mustache. A bunch of other people did. Somehow, I managed to keep my mustache uh, through the days at ESPN. And then it kind of became, it became a race between would I get to be popular enough and have enough cachet where they would stop asking me to shave the mustache off. And I guess I reached past that point because then at some point – they 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 didn't they just stopped asking. The irony of that is, and I tell this story in the book, which is where you're getting it from. Now I I go to Showtime in 2004, and I had a uh, uh, I had a, uh, a, a, a oh I'll tell you what I had I had something that uh, you guys I love when announcers in the UK say he's in a mini crisis. I love that phrase. So. Uh, uh, I had a mini crisis with my mustache where I, I was trying to trim it. And all of a sudden 
I was trimming it. And as I kept trimming it, I was getting closer and closer to looking like Adolf Hitler with the mustache, right? So I, I, had a, I reached the point where there was, I, I went into my wife and I said, what do I do? And she looked at me, she said, there's only one thing you can do. You need to shave that off right now because you look ridiculous. So I did. And just to see for, uh, for about four months, in the only time in my whole life, I was without the mustache. And David Dinkins, again, the uh, associate producer, executive producer of Showtime Sports, we're on an airplane going somewhere. And he looked at me and he said, when are you going to put the mustache back on? <laughs> so the irony is TV executives were desperate to try and get me to shave the mustache off. And then once I shaved it, TV executives were trying to get me to put it back on. So I finally, and I did in fact put it back on and it, it, there it has stayed. It grew on them. Uh, yeah, well put, very good, it grew on them. That's, there you go, that's the perfect, perfect line. So I think the moral of the story there, Macklin, is if, if we want to find out just how kind of integral to the to the team and to everything we are at Sky is we need to grow some kind of some facial hair. The more bizarre, the better, and see right. if we see if we can get away with it. You'll, you'll find out how much they really feel like they need you. Now, I'm not that, urging this because I don't want to be responsible for you guys losing your job. That would be – I would feel pretty guilty. <laughs> and my last name is Bernstein. Making me feel guilty is really easy. So <laughs> – so I would feel I'd feel pretty bad about that, but but I think that is probably the the the, the true formula to figure out. I mean, was there a part where not have did, was there ever uh, with UK sportscasters uh, was did were there was there a thing about that with uh, with facial hair? Did, were people okay with that or or yeah, people not? were people were fine with it. People were fine with it. One of one of the the most famous sports anchors we've had for. In, over the last 30, 40 years, Des Lynham, he had the silver oh, there fox. There's an example, yeah. The silver fox, he had a very fine stash. So, <laughs> but then again, he was he was a big name and had been for quite a while. So, I think yeah. if you I think if you were kind of making your way and you were clean shaven, then all of a sudden you bowled onto set one day with with a mustache. Right. I think that would be quite. You know that would be quite. You might, might have ruffled yeah. some feathers, but I, I look yeah. forward to I look forward to seeing Matt do it. Um, because yeah, I, well, man, he's you know he's a former champion. He's got all that cachet. He's you know he can he can do whatever he wants. He's he's a superstar, so he can they they can't say anything to him. No, absolutely. He's got a couple of weeks before the first show. That's, that's the answer to that. He's got a couple of weeks before the next show. He can he can get to work on it. Um, so I will we'll let you go. Thanks thanks very much. This has been this has been great great fun. Um, you've got a busy week, so brilliant that you could you could squeeze this squeeze us in and yeah, it's been a crazy week i flew back from connecticut and i've had like two days at home and uh, uh doing zoom meetings and whatever and uh now I'm, and of course now doing that podcast and the tv show that grew from the podcast i'm like I, I i said to my my wife said to me aren't you supposed to be working less at this point instead of more i said i don't know that's a good point i'll have to, I'll have to rethink this <laughs> but anyway hey what a delight to visit with you guys we'll have to do it again and uh, um, it's uh, it's been fun. And I, you know, man, I got to call one of your fights. Felix uh, uh, Sturm. Pardon? Was it one of four Felix Sturm in Germany? Yeah, that's right. And and also, uh, yeah, it was that one. I think. So I didn't get to do much of your career, but I did get to do a little bit. So yeah. so that so was fun. I you were Showtime. 
yeah, yeah. So, you know, I just didn't get over there to do to do it, but I did get to do a little bit. And I always admired your boxing and always got a kick out of watching you fight. So thanks, Al. Hey, great to see you guys. Okay, Al, thanks very much. Thanks very much. Uh, thanks very much for tuning in, everybody. We are starting to bring you a second episode every week now for a few more weeks at least. We did that during lockdown and our top producer, Darren Reese, decided to start it up again this week. So this has come out on a Tuesday. Then appropriately on Friday, it's a journalist special. So we look back on some conversations we've had previously with, with top journalists and stitch that together into a nice, tidy little hour. Uh, and two of the men featured are Thomas Hauser and Steve Farad. So... So that'll be fun. Steve, we spoke to in, in Andy Ruiz's dressing room on the day of the AJ versus Ruiz fight. We didn't realise at the time that that where we were sitting a few hours later would be would be the scene of jubilant celebrations. It was it was something else that weekend, it really was. And our third man in that podcast, last but certainly not least, is John Denon of Boxing News. So watch out for those coming on Fridays. Our normal episodes will be coming on Tuesdays. Uh, if you find the time to give us a rate and a review, all the better. But we'll see you again soon. And old Lucy Brown. Yes, that line falls on the right babe. Not that Maggie's back in Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.